0: Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast.
1: Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with The Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. We'll be talking with Samir Gandesha, who's an associate professor in the Department of Humanities at Simon Fraser University, in addition to being director of the Institute for the Humanities at the same university.
0: And during our conversation with Samir, we're going to be talking about the topic of free speech, touching on things like Jordan Peterson, hate speech laws in Canada, and the recent attempts to shut down events and teaching efforts on campuses.
1: I think it's going to be pretty interesting. As always.
0: Do you have any jokes?
1: Well, maybe in the outro.
0: Okay, should we cut to the interview then? Yes. All right, let's go. So, we're sitting with, uh, well, we're sitting with over the phone (laughs) with Samir Gandesha, who is an associate professor in the Department of the Humanities at Simon Fraser University.
1: Hi, Samir. Hi. Why don't we jump right into it. And um, sure, You've been uh, pretty vocal um, as a writer and both as the director of the Institute of Humanities on the topic of uh, free speech. Why is it important for us to take it seriously today?
2: Okay. Uh, well, thanks for the, uh, the question, Patrick. Before I uh, begin, um, I, I'd just like to thank both of you for um, inviting me here, it's, uh, especially on, on such an important issue uh, one which I, I think people on the left are, are generally quite hesitant to address. I suggested uh, that we should have a, a kind of forum within the Institute uh, where we have a number of perspectives on the question. And the the caginess and, and, and anxiety that this provoked was quite uh, unbelievable to me. So it's, a, it's quite a hot button issue and, and hopefully we can sort of work through it and discuss it in a contextualized way. And that's where I'd really start, which is context in history. I think we have to recognize that free speech along with other freedoms and uh, uh, principles, such as the inviolability of the person, resistance to oppression, and so on, these are all part and parcel of what we generally call the bourgeois revolution. And the left has always been an advocate of defending rights. Deepening freedoms. Uh, and I think that this is important to recognize. Um, so I think this is really part of the, the historical background of, of free speech. Why is it important for us to take seriously today? Well, it's it's really important because, especially post-9-11, there's been a real securitization. Of the societies in, in in the West, but increasingly, this is a global phenomenon. States are using the threat of terrorism, for example, to really uh, curtail the the civil liberties of its of its citizens and We see this you know in in this country, um, most notably with the uh, anti terror legislation brought in by the previous government, and the liberals said that they were going to uh, amend it, but have have done very little so this is a larger context within which we are we're working and And I suppose my intuition is the left shouldn't be playing these kinds of games itself, except for, you know, very real cases of confronting racists and actual fascists who who are given the platform. But it seems to me that that becomes so over overextended or there's a degree of overreach that becomes really quite self self self-defeating.
1: About a year year and a half ago now, maybe, there was this whole flurry of events surrounding um, Jordan Peterson on the one hand, and a um, Laurier TA by the name of... Um,
2: Lindsay Shepard. Lindsay Shepard, that's Shepherd.
1: right. Yeah. Uh, she was a TA in a communications class, and she apparently showed her students a, an interview of Jordan Peterson on um, that came from Ontario Public Television. Yeah, TVO. Yeah. And so Shepard showed that, and then apparently somebody told... On her, and uh, she had to face her course director. Yeah, you know, how are we supposed to make sense of everything that happened here? Uh, do you have a Do you have any idea of how to sort of cut through the noise on this kind of a whole uh, event?
2: Well, you know, it's um, it's a tough one because uh, I think that you know there's two approaches to take. One is to sift through the minutia. She said there were these false claims about what what's you know students com- complaining and so on. So. It becomes a really kind of uh, tangled narrative. But I think there's another way of looking at this, and and that could be that this is part and parcel of an overzealous attempt to protect students from confronting views that they might disagree with, that they might find offensive, be hurt by.
0: Yeah, and I guess uh, with that situation and many others where the left is attempting to protect people... By limiting speech, um, these uh, attempts very often backfire. So in in your piece, in defense of free speech, you say, quote, that the event um, in regards to Jordan Peterson and the Lindsay Shepard case uh, dramatically added value to his brand um, and no doubt boosted sales of his recent self-help book. So by Laurier University trying to protect people from hearing, you know, so-called offensive speech from Jordan Peterson, they've actually helped – I've it unleashed an onslaught of, of Jordan
1: mind. Peterson.
2: <laughs> exactly. No, this is an amplification of, of his message and his brand, which is exactly the opposite of what was intended, right? Mm-hmm. So I, but I also have another sort of example of how these approaches to speech can backfire quite dangerously on the left. And, and one is, I think, uh, so correct me if I'm, I, I'm wrong on this, but there were eight students who have been singled out for punishment by the university, right, for, for the way they expressed dissent um, during this, the recent strike.
1: At uh, York.
2: At York, yes, yes. And one of the things that the president said was that these students created an unsafe and disrespectful environment. So here you have the whole discourse of safe spaces being used to target genuine, meaningful and vital dissent.
0: I guess kind of talking about safe spaces. So I definitely um, sympathize with someone wanting to enter a university environment and feel as though they're not going to be attacked. On the other hand, as we've seen, it's very hard to create safe spaces and also have a true environment of of freedom of speech. And so how do you you balance between what is genuine invocations of free speech or just kind of attacks?
2: Yeah, I'm not advocating... A um, context in which people are at each other's throats, which means that those who have the least power uh, become victimized it, it is fundamentally based on uh, on mutual respect and if that mutual respect is 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 violated, then there has to be something will be uh, done about it. but I think the retreat of certain groups certain marginalized groups, for example, into spaces where they where they are isolated from others i'm not sure that's ultimately uh, helpful at all and and you know i wrote this piece on the world cup and um and in thinking about some of the pioneers in the game right uh, black players who suffered enormous racism and violence degradation but persisted and and in persisting they opened doors for other players who still today experience a lot of racism but the thing is the the, the game is different and it's it is much more inclusive precisely because these these people took risks and went into unsafe spaces and in a sense made them a bit safer. Not you know they're not nowhere close to being safe spaces, but they they are safer because they went out into the world. That gets overlooked in the rush to create safe spaces.
1: While there seems to be a paradox to this politics of safe space, though, because. While the the left is often caricatured as claiming the right for this safe space, I actually find it's the right that is the mo- that is uh, usually invoking it the most. For example, the, the refusal to have honest debate, for example, between someone, say, like Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek. Peterson totally refuses to have a debate with this person you know in the meantime they have their safe spaces as well on the internet on youtube on the ben shapiro show on the dave rubin show where it's just an echo chamber for themselves um you know so how how do we break that that bubble to have a genuine confrontation of ideas
2: that's a really excellent question and i couldn't agree more with your your statement that the right uh, itself retreats into kind of safe spaces and and bubbles or call them, you know, echo chambers. And they have the resources to do this. I mean, you look at all the think tanks, Uh, the Fraser Institute, for example, you know, creates this kind of context in which it gestates and then disseminates very sort of right-wing libertarian ideas about the the dominance of the market and, and 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 so on. So there's a kind of structural you know bias already that the that the right has and this this needs to be thought about and, and critiqued. Um, I think one of the best examples of the right simply having a, a kind of you know internal uh, dialogue is the most recent monk debate. Uh so how can we actually have have a context in which you have a, a genuine confrontation between uh, left-wing and right-wing ideas. I, I think that there's room for institutes such as our own at uh, at SF, the Institute for Humanities, to stage such uh, uh, you know confrontations. Although, I mean, when you do that, you do open yourself to criticism from you know some of your own constituencies who are more activists and, and uh, have a certain kind of left politics, and who also don't want to uh, engage uh, with. With the right, so it it can be it can be tricky.
1: You you did mention in your essay on the on the defense of free speech, um, Garrett Smith, who had set up a tent just outside of a courthouse where uh, he was, he wanted people to ask him uh, difficult, even even racist questions. And I was just wondering if you could maybe unpack a little bit what what you thought of this because when I read this, I thought, you know, is that useful to sort of have particular sort of free speech spaces, or is this something uh, that should be more broadly practiced? Um,
2: Uh, That's an excellent question. Uh, What what really struck me about this example was here you have somebody who is putting himself into a position where he's dealing with speech that, yeah, it's not only going to be possibly highly offensive, um, uh, but, But uh, um, offensive in a in a deeply racist way, Um, but yet he's still going to address it and he's going to try to counter it without, in a sense, closing down or disavowing it. And and I think this is really important because we have to have on the left a generalized strategy uh, that follows this kind of model. And it it comes out of you know my reading of of Gramsci. What's really important. For Gramsci, of course, is the concept of hegemony, Um, and as it sort of, you know, operates at the level of the masses, hegemony takes the form of common sense, right? And common sense is a hybrid uh, of of different elements, you know, from from the past, the present, different figures uh, that coalesce into a kind of worldview, and Gramsci's idea of politics was that that one needed to engage with that common sense. One needed to transform it into what he called good sense. And the difference between common sense and good sense is that common sense was naturalized and static, whereas good sense was historical and dynamic, right? But the thing is, common sense and good sense share the same kinds of elements. And I think this is really important that, that there are elements of a right wing agenda that have to in a sense be disarticulated from it and articulated to a left one
0: you you've argued in your in your pieces that anti racism um, and the activism around anti-racism can lead to the deepening of racism, and you're very critical of the politics of representation um right yeah
2: good so um you know let me be clear i i'm I, i'm not critical of anti-racism per se, I'm critical of that form of anti-racism that uh, assumes that we um, address race by putting, you address racism um, by putting, as Keanu Yamada-Taylor said, black faces in high places. We've seen, you know, a black face in the very highest place, and that didn't improve the condition of Black people in the United States. The politics of representation in and of themselves don't get you a, a, a more just society. What you need, rather, is an understanding of the way in which race, class, gender, sexual orientation are part and parcel of the system of, of domination. and those structures need to then be transformed. And so that requires way more than simply putting a, a multi- multicultural face on neoliberal capitalism. My view is that the left seems to have lost that analysis of what actually gives rise to racism. It's not white supremacy, right? White supremacy is not the, um, the cause of racism. We have to look at the cause of white supremacy. And what goes with the critique an analysis of white supremacy often is attacks directly on white people. Now, I know as much as anybody else that white people can say some stupid things at times, but you don't attack people personally. You attack the structure of white supremacy. But if you start attacking individuals, I think you're down a very, very dangerous path. I think it's just it's just wrong. Politically, it's disastrous because it can then be a kind of recruiting device for uh, for the far right.
1: Um, a lot of the knots around this issue come from the fact that um, we live in such a visually oriented culture that we put so much emphasis on how the person enunciating the speech looks and we therefore assume that that speech is instrumentally related to how the person looks uh, and there's this conflation of the two I think that is overdone a little bit.
2: I think you're raising a really crucial point because We've lost the ability to have robust arguments, including everybody, right? Those with comparative privilege, those who are comparatively uh, comparatively less privileged, precisely because if you disagree with somebody, if you disagree with somebody, right, it is perceived these days as an attack on their very identity. I think you're getting at this, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: And, and this is a a, a a big problem, conflict, and sometimes you know discussions involve conflict, conflicting positions. Conflict is not abuse, but I think those two have been conflated in our in in kind of left culture, and it's it's absolutely paralyzing in my view.
1: But at the same time, in Canada, we have hate speech uh, laws. Uh, we had spoken with other people who are generally defend uh, um, Canada's hate, hate speech laws, and they say the problem is that they're not being enforced. And if they're being enforced, um, the right will be more on the defensive, especially on the internet and these kinds of things. Do you think it's a good idea to have laws on speech?
2: I, listen, I have no problem regulating hate speech. And I think I can justify that and also defend free speech by saying that free speech hinges, as I was saying earlier, uh, on a larger context right, of mutuality and reciprocity. And what hate speech does is it destroys that reciprocity and will ultimately uh, undermine the very freedom it makes use of. But I don't think we want uh, the, the definition to, to overreach. That's how I would uh, both defend free speech and also defend r- regulation.
0: I guess the challenge is that, um, uh, in my mind at least, and why I sometimes am inclined to the free speech absolutist position is because the laws of the land are made by a court system which is embedded in the logic of private property. And so I wonder about, you know, if these judges who have a vested interest in maintaining the system that employs them, how how can I ensure that these judgments will allow people with truly transgressive and uh, transgressive things to say, like, how can I make sure that they'll be like truly protected in that, in the system where there's a vested interest to not protect them?
2: This is such a great question. Um, so, for example, if you argue uh, and agitate for the overthrow Uh, of capitalism. Um, Isn't this a kind of hate speech against those who own property and who have a vested interest in the maintenance of the status quo? Um, Are you not, in a sense, uh, advocating their uh, deposition? So I think this is an excellent question. And this is one of the motivations for me to defend free speech. um, As as, as far as I can, precisely because it's again and again deployed against the left. I would say, though, that you know we have to understand the state as not simply—I mean, it is the—you know—as Marx put it, the executive committee of uh, the the bourgeoisie. Uh, but it's not just that. There are contradictions that are uh, built into the into the state. And these days, one of the most important bulwarks against the total domination of the executive branch of government in our parliamentary system is the independent judiciary. So I think that that has to be really kept in mind too. Mm-hmm. Are there limitations of bourgeois democracy? Of course. However, uh, I think we have to be very careful in not undermining, you know, parliamentary democracy from the left at the very moment in which it's being deeply undermined.
0: Yeah, uh, I-, I completely agree right. with that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So. Uh, So on this basis, I would say that we need to be very clear as socialists that our aim is a determinate negation of bourgeois democracy, right? That is to say, both a cancelling and a preserving of certain of its elements, as opposed to uh, a kind of nihilistic demolition.
1: Does this is this make sense? Something like a socialist public sphere? Like I'm one part of what I'm thinking is is like, couldn't we have better television programming on public television for you know instant? That's one aspect, but then there's also this broader aspect in terms of having debates where, for better or worse, Slavoj Žižek and Jordan Peterson can can debate each other, or is this something totally unrelated?
2: No, I think this is great because it gets back really to the very first thing we talked about, and that is situating um, the the socialist project and also you know, this particular question of free speech and public sphere within a historical context. So I've always seen the left as a place of ideas, a place where debate happens, a place where people can have respectful disagreements and still uh, be comrades, you know, but this has changed very much over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And I find that disturbing. And so we need to come back to it. Um, So a socialist public sphere, uh, you know, would uh, entail um, massive public commitment to uh, a more literate, informed, reasonable, uh, and uh, passionate culture. And will, of course, reflect some of the history of formerly existing socialism within which the right to free speech and expression dissent was often uh, drastically curtailed or actually non-existent so we have to of course learn from those histor- historical experiences and reflect them in our practice today
0: okay well thank you so so much samir for joining us and speaking so freely <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with us this afternoon um well
2: thanks it was my pleasure
0: yes uh, our pleasure as well So, what did you think, Patrick?
1: Um, I think uh, what's uh, definitely true is the right is—it's clear they're totally hypocritical on this, calling out uh, people for uh, invoking safe spaces when they're the ones who want to be in the biggest safe space, the safe space of capital. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's um, true. They're the 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 capital snowflakes, but
0: yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I. I don't really think that there's like an easy way out. I mean, it is really difficult to have Marxist and socialist ideas broadcasted so that they can contend uh, with right-wing ideas and rising uh, hard right-wing ideas.
1: And, and, and I think um, Samir gets at that uh, at the end when we're talking about the socialist uh, public sphere. And I know it sounds cheesy and it's passé, but uh, one thing I think the left has really forgotten about is really the um, robust support of public institutions in terms of uh, the media. There used to be a much more vigorous politics of uh, defending the quality of the CBC and public broadcasting in Canada. Um, and this seems to be Cast aside by the left in favor of other in favor of other uh, issues, but I think that that that's coming at a huge cost. So thank you for listening to the best breakfast theme podcast, Oats for Breakfast. If you like having oats outside of regular breakfast hours or with a side of fruit, you can do so any time of the day by going to www.patreon.com forward slash oatsforbreakfast and help us by becoming a patron.
0: If you'd like to learn more about uh, the podcast and The Socialist Project, you can visit thesocialistproject.ca. Uh, we have a lot of other things going on on the website. You can learn more on our, about our ongoing transit campaign and read the latest news from a very erudite a left perspective.
1: If you like your oats just the way they are or wish they were cooked with a a little longer or a little more cinnamon, a little less apples, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast.socialistproject.ca.
0: Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.
1: Bye-bye.